Mr. Lutz back here again with our last episode in Unit 1 from World History Class with Mr. Lutz. Today's episode, what we're looking to do is just really summarize up the classical world and tie some things together and put a nice bow in this package. So let's get going. into our final key concept connections of this unit, just a quick refresher of what our three key concepts are. We've got 2.1, which states, as states and empires increased in size and contacts between regions intensified, human communities transformed their religious and ideological beliefs and practices. Moving on into key concept 2.2, states, as the early states and empires grew in number, size, and population, they frequently competed for resources and came into conflict with one another. Finally, rounded it out here, key concept 2.3 states with the organization of large-scale empires, trans-regional trade intensified, leading to the creation of extensive networks of commercial and cultural exchange. And I really think that key concept 2.3 is addressed here in chapter 5 probably more than any of the other three, because remember it's chapters 2 through 5 that cover period two here. Uh, but I still even think with that being said, key concept 2.3 is the most poorly addressed of the three key concepts. And so when I get into our zooming in section here, I'm going to try to talk more about the Silk Road specifically, but also understand we'll focus on 2.3 a lot in class. And you guys should be thinking about that one as actively as possible, because I think the other two, a lot of the thinking is already done for you. So if you're on page 100, uh, there's a section there that's called Expansion and Integration, and it only goes into about halfway of page 101, and it really just talks about some patterns between the three regions that are shared, that is China, India, and the Mediterranean, just asking some similar questions. Um, how do these places all manage to unite and strengthen? Uh, when they integrate, as they integrate more territory, what challenges are they facing here? What are similar patterns they have in terms of their social systems? How do they maintain unity throughout the empire? I really don't think I need to say much about this section because so much of what I've done in previous episodes and so much of what your textbook has done in previous chapters has really done a service of, of helping you guys understand these patterns. So if you need to, I would encourage you to go back to the earlier chapters to think about the evidence that supports the argument that's put forth by Peter Stearns in this section. He's talking in a lot of general characteristics, which of course he's going to be just talking in generalities if he's covering this in a matter of, I don't know, six or seven paragraphs. As you're reading that section, it'd really be a good idea on your part to just think about what are the specific facts that I could pull back from earlier chapters that could really strengthen and solidify his point that he's making. And again, this is really tying into key concepts 2.1 and 2.2, the expansion of states at this time, and how are they integrating diverse peoples into their populations as well. So yeah, not much to say about that part other than use that to go back and think about earlier material that you've learned. 
So starting on page 101 and moving to page 106, you have what's called Beyond the Classical Civilizations. And so you've probably realized after reading chapters 2, 3, and 4, in this world history class, our focus has been ridiculously narrow in period 2, because really we're looking at the Mediterranean world, at China and at India, and you're probably thinking to yourself, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that are not addressed in those three regions of the world. And so Stearns in these five pages really tries to just squeeze in um, some overviews of all these different groups of people, whether you have um, some of the sub-Saharan kingdoms in Africa, talks about the Japanese, what's happening in Northern Europe, into Central America, uh, even into South America and in Polynesia and Central Asia. He's covering all these regions like super quickly. And it's, it's way too ridiculous for me to go into too much detail about all these different people. What I would recommend that you do with this middle section of the chapter is just try to give yourself a basic understanding of these areas and how to do that, how to like retain this meaningfully is just think, how do they compare with the world in this current era, this current era, meaning 600 BCE to 600 CE or are the more appropriate comparisons lying in that earlier era with the River Valley civilizations? You know, like case in point, I'll get, I'll get into depth, a little bit of depth with one of these groups, the Kingdom of Aksum. Um, they're, they're located in the mountains of northern Ethiopia. Uh, their merchants are going to be trading on the Red Sea, which then brings them into the larger Indian Ocean Basin. And through contacts in that trading network, uh, they realize that it's, you know, religiously in their best interest, but also economically, politically in their best interest to convert to Christianity. It, it will help with trade. It will help cement stronger ties with the Egyptian Christians in the north. Keep in mind, this is like the fourth century CE when this is happening. So they're going to convert and, and they're going to maintain a Christian presence in that part of the world. Uh, that will stand the test of time because even as Islam begins to spread throughout Africa, that area, which will then become known as Ethiopia, will maintain its Christian links. And through those trade interactions, through those interactions, that's really the key thing. There's through those interactions, they're able to culturally and politically and economically thrive. Whereas you get into places like Japan and like Northern Europe and Central America and South America and Polynesia, and what's the common thread that holds all of these places together? It's geographic isolation. So they're going to be developing independently of these other places by and large. So that's a common theme that holds these places together. And again, as you're as you're paying attention to, I don't know, let's say you're looking at like the Olmecs of South America or Central America, excuse me. What you're going to notice about them is it's probably better to think about them in terms of how they're more related to the river valley civilizations than they are to the classical civilizations that we've been talking about because, you know, it's that isolation that's going to hold them back. And we'll see how that isolation is going to serve as a detriment later on in this class. And the last group that gets talked about in this section is going to be the peoples of Central Asia. And why they're so important in this time is because they serve as links between these more established sedentary civilized populations throughout Eurasia. Um, they're going to help facilitate trade between these groups, contact between these groups. They're going to make important inventions. 
like the stirrup that your book mentions that will help um, with transportation. But really the important thing here that I think it's going to get into the segue into the next part is they're going to invade these more sedentary peoples and help contribute to the acceleration of their decline, which is a huge part of this chapter. That is the decline in China and the decline in India and the decline and fall in Rome as well. So I want to address each of these three places one by one. We'll start with China, we'll move into India, and then we'll go to Rome. And yeah, your book mentions outside invasions contribute to the to the collapse of these three different civilizations. That's totally true. But there are so many other factors. And to paint this picture of just like, why did Rome collapse? Terrible emperors, period. No, that that's too simplistic. It's too basic. There's just a lot of there's just a lot of ingredients that go into these, I don't know, soups of imperial decline, let's call it. Um, so just to say it's all this or all that, it's way too simplistic. It's always more complicated than just one factor. Um, so that's what I want to kind of do is just introduce to you some of these different issues that arise in these different empires. So starting with China, uh, a major problem that they have that leads to their fall is the fact that there's increasing income inequality, and it's due to their land inheritance problems. What would happen is when the, the male landowner would die, all of his male children would inherit land. So that land then would be divided. If there's four children, the land that the one father owned would be divided four ways. So the plots of land they owned became smaller and smaller, and they became so small to the point that you couldn't even harvest enough food on the land that you had inherited. So you're forced to take on loans to try to, to have money and resources to help you purchase more supplies or flat out purchase food to sustain yourself. And then you can't afford these loans. So then the land gets confiscated by the lender. So then what starts to happen is that lender, typically a large landowner who has the money to do that, lend out the money, their land owning is going to grow and grow and grow. And the even larger problem than this, because you're probably thinking, okay, well, then there's going to be a gap in wealth. There's going to be an inequality gap, which is true. But then the other thing that compounds that is the brilliant idea that large landowners don't have to pay taxes either. Yeah, makes sense of that one. So they're going to grow in wealth as they inherit this land from these people who can't pay the taxes or the loans. And then they don't have to pay taxes on the land that they've gotten from these people who have just gone bankrupt. And the people who have gone bankrupt, they are expected to continue paying taxes. So this is happening against the backdrop of, of in the aristocratic families of China. There's a lot of just competition and infighting and backstabbing with one another for more power and influence in the royal court. So there already we've got like three issues. You've got this land inheritance issue. You've got this unbalanced tax structure. And you've got this competition within the imperial court, not to mention epidemic disease thanks a lot, trade, is going to spread to China. Uh, it's believed it's probably smallpox or measles, and it's probably, most, most historians would agree, that it would result in the deaths of about a quarter to a third of the total population in China during this time. So you have people who just are really going to turn inward, are not going to trade as much, therefore economic revenue is going to drop off, um, and the government is dealing with some major major difficult situations and they're just not competent enough to, to handle these crises and so these problems are going to lead to rebellions with the people um 
probably the most popular of all your book mentions as well. It's called the Yellow Turban Rebellion, which happens in 184 CE. Uh, so what happens here is you have peasants who are going to be led by Taoist healers. Uh, why Taoist healers are going to be able to help the peasants and lead the peasants is because these healers were doing their services for the peasants for free at a time when peasants don't have the resources to take care of themselves through traditional healers. Um, and these Taoist healers are going to advocate land reform, legal reform, so stuff that's going to appeal to those lower classes. Now, the rebellion is going to be put down, but the Han have to spend so much economic resources towards putting the rebellion down that that continues to promote this spiral of dwindling revenue and therefore imperial stability that they just cannot offset and manage anymore. So by the third century CE, the Han dynasty will have completely collapsed and you'll have a period of instability for several generations before really uh, you'll have cultural unity again in the region. Now the difference with India, if you guys remember when we first talked about India, we said that it was already a pretty politically fragmented place. Um, of course, the Maryas and the Guptas are able to improve centralization at times, but when they face outside invaders who are the, called the White Huns, uh, it's going to really just lead to a very quick regional fragmentation once again. Now, the difference, though, is that Indian culture is going to continue to unify the people. Remember, they don't, they don't need that political state to maintain the unity because Hinduism, with its kind of, let's say, built-in social framework, that's going to be responsible for defining and shaping and influencing Indian society far more than any centralized state possibly could. So its cultural unity is really going to be able to withstand these nomadic invaders, even if the imperial state can't withstand it. Which brings us to Rome. Uh, the collapse of Rome. Where to begin? I'm not going to make this as long as the Roman Greece episode, so don't worry about that. But what I will say is that you can't distill Rome especially into one reason. There's an interplay of factors that are going to come together and help speed up the decline of the empire. Uh, to start with, you have political chaos in the empire. 26 emperors in 49 years. You know, sometimes we think that society is in chaos and spiraling out of control, but imagine 26 different leaders in a period of 49 years. And how this is happening is that generals are taking charge of the empire and then they're being overthrown by maybe another military rival or troops who disagree with them. And it's thought that there's a good chance only one of those 26, the 49 period that they all ruled, only one of them probably died of natural causes. Now, your book does argue that this chaos leads to a moral decay among the Roman elite as well. Um, this instability, this kind of the political chaos, constant turmoil leads to people kind of just turning inwards and saying, forget cultivating virtue and being a morally good person. I just want to live an independently good life because the, the political run of the mill, the political day-to-day -day stuff is just crazy. And I'm not going to worry about that. So what this results in then is a decline in local governance and stability as well. Um, it's kind of cool too, because how Stearns argues that point, how, how he sees that 
being historically accurate, he talks about inscriptions on Roman tombstones and what they say. Um, the one was, quote, I was not, I was, I am not, I have no more desires. And he says that it, quote, suggesting, it suggests a pervasive de despondency over the futility of this life and despair at the absence of an afterlife, end quote, which I think is kind of a cool way of looking into history. You know, we wouldn't necessarily think that looking at a gravestone can shed a lot of light on a historical time period, but in Rome especially, it actually does. And there's a lot of historians. If you guys remember, I mentioned Mary Beard in the last episode. She is one who really relies on tombstone inscriptions to gather a lot of her information about the empire. Um, so yeah, political chaos, but you also have, like China, epidemic disease spreading as well, um, which forces broad trade networks to kind of collapse and, and, and turn to a more local economy. So this leads to decreasing revenue for the imperial treasury in Rome as well. And also Rome's territorial expansion is limiting by the, by the second century CE. So this means there's a tax base that isn't growing in the same way that it was before. So less money's coming in. So what they're going to do is they're going to create new coins, and those new coins are going to have less silver in them. And once people get wise to this, they're not going to trust the currency as much in terms of the value it has. So they're going to start charging more for their goods, which means increased inflation throughout the empire as well, which then furthers problems. Um, yeah, so Rome's getting really hard to govern. It's getting really hard to manage. And so one of the emperors, a guy named Diocletian, is going to try to deal with the difficulty of managing the size of the empire by dividing it into two. And he's going to reform the economy. He's going to tighten government spending, set some fixed prices on goods. Um, it's going to stabilize the empire for some time. But then what it's going to lead to pretty much after his death is going to be infighting for total control of the empire. And uh, a later emperor known as Constantine is going to take control of the empire through internal conflict, he's going to reunify it and move the imperial capital out of Rome to Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul and located in modern-day Turkey. So, yeah, there's just difficulty in managing the empire, chaos in trying to stabilize it. Sometimes it is stabilized, but then chaos even stems from that stabilization. So it's just really spiraling out of control here. You then also have those nomadic groups that keep popping up in China, in India, and here they come into Europe. Now, the Huns come from Central Asia and start to invade the fringes of the empire, which doesn't directly affect Rome. It directly affects the Germanic people living on the fringes of Roman territory. Those Germanic people had interacted with the Romans for a long time. Sometimes they adopt Roman law. Sometimes they adopt Christian religion. Sometimes they're fighting alongside of the Romans as mercenaries. But it starts to become problematic for Rome to deal with them once these people start to move in on Roman territory due to these nomadic invaders creating problems in the land that they once lived on. These people become desperate in search for material stability. They're going to be driven to invade Roman land. They're going to even sack Rome itself in 410 CE. And this is just going to lead to a thorough weakening for all of these reasons when finally in 476 CE, there's a Germanic general who's named Odoacer. And he's going to depose the final Roman emperor who's called Romulus Augustulus. And that's going to mark the conclusion of the, here's the key thing, the end of the Western Roman Empire. 
because the Eastern Roman Empire is going to continue to live on successfully for centuries to come, and that's going to be talked about in our class. It's typically the Byzantine Empire. Um, one of its emperors, Justinian, is even going to be so successful that he can temporarily bring Italy and North Africa back into the imperial fold, but he will then lose it. But the Byzantine Empire is going to thrive for centuries to come here, and we'll talk more about them as we go through the class this year. And so by 111, your book gets into what's called the New Religious Map. And its real focus here is just going to be the end of this classical period means that Buddhism and Christianity are going to be able to grow in a way that they never had before. So starting with Buddhism, the reason for this is because Buddhism is going to shift from focusing on ethics and individual human behavior to focusing increasingly on per per personal salvation. And it's because there's going to be these bodhisattvas who are going to be people who have reached nirvana in this life, uh, and they're going to help people pursue their path towards salvation um, among individual followers. And this is really going to appeal especially in China because the, the thing about Buddhism is it doesn't need the state to facilitate its popularity. If it's saying you can achieve salvation on your own, well, then you don't need this whole large hierarchy to help facilitate that. So it really is going to be popularized as Indian merchants come in and nomadic empires begin to settle into China who had adopted Buddhism, even to the point where you're going to get the development of a new strain of Buddhism called Mahayana Buddhism, uh, and they're going to see the Buddha as a god. And this is going to continue to spread not only into China, but into Japan, into Korea, and into Vietnam, thanks to the work of these missionaries and these merchants who help spread the faith. And even with Christianity, um, you know, in its early days in Rome, it had been persecuted heavily, which we had talked about in the earlier episode. But then starting in the fourth century, things start to change and it sets the stage for the rest of Western European and pretty much ultimately world history. Uh, with, with Constantine, we talked about this infighting he has to take control of the Roman Empire from his co-rulers. He is convinced that he was aided by the Christian God in his victory and so in 313, he decides that through this thing called the Edict of Milan, Christianity is going to be able to be legally practiced throughout the empire. And at a later point, he's even going to convert to the religion himself. Um, after him, the Emperor Theodosius is going to make Christianity now the official religion of the empire as well. And it's at that point that Christianity goes from originally being a religion for the lower classes. It starts to get adopted by intellectuals. And these intellectuals are going to start to be able to make their, a more sophisticated message of Christianity that can appeal to an even larger group of people. Uh, and people like St. Augustine of Hippo is able to merge Christian beliefs with Greco-Roman philosophy. So it doesn't feel like you're abandoning the past for this new thing. And it feels like it's much more of a transition because it's really important for you guys to understand it's not just like all of a sudden Rome becomes Christian and, and overnight they just morph into this totally new religious empire. There's a lot of slow transitional processes that, that develop at that time, and we'll get into that a little bit in class. Um, but the other thing to understand about Christianity at this time is that what it means to be Christian can vary all throughout Eurasia. And so in the 4th and 5th centuries, what the church is going to do is it's going to standardize its beliefs and they're going to make sure through things like the Nicene Creed, they can agree on certain things, such as the nature of Jesus. Is Jesus the Son of God, or is Jesus just a person? 
Um, obviously, Christians agree on the, the first part. Um, but what you start to see, so we're talking now 4th and 5th centuries, we're talking now about the imminent decline of Rome. And as Roman imperial authority in Western Europe is going to start to collapse, the Pope of the Catholic Church steps in and becomes the nominal leader of the people in the region. Um, his authority allows the church to help manage community affairs. And the Catholic Church is going to start to assume responsibility for its followers way beyond just terms of faith. It's going to serve as the healthcare provider, food services provider, the record keeper for local towns, and a whole host of other things. So the Catholic Church is really going to step into this massively powerful role that they would not have had were it not for the collapse of Rome. So for this episode zooming in, what I wanted to turn our attention to is this piece of the world historical puzzle that gets addressed in this unit, but I just think it deserves more attention, and that's going to be the Silk Road. I just want you guys to see a few things about it, just how important it really is and how it can really help change the way you understand world history at this time. Case in point, um, a lot of the information I'm going to talk about comes from a book called The Silk Roads, A New History of the World by a historian named Peter Frankopan. And it came out, I think, two years ago, and it's just a ridiculously good book. Uh, I'm not going to belabor too many points, but I just want to give you a few things here. One of the arguments he makes is that we always associate Rome with the traditions and the beliefs and values of Western Europe. So we think that Rome cares most about Western Europe. And it's just not the case. Um, he, he really makes it the point to say Rome was always looking east. Rome was always looking to places that we wouldn't have traditionally thought it would have for its stability. Uh, when they take control of Egypt, it's so important to them because they're able to secure a grain supply and they're able to have a stable food supply, which can really help them grow the empire far beyond what they could have before. And the Romans where they're going to get their sense of style and their taste for the good life from is going to be from the East. And this is really in large part due to Chinese silk being so popular with them. I mean, it's even going to lead to this belief that Roman morality is decaying because of this increasingly popular material that is silk. And he goes on to talk about it trying to be banned, men could not wear silk. He talks about historians arguing how ridiculous it was that silk was valued at such an inflated price. And he also mentions, though, too, it wasn't just silk that they were interested in throughout the Silk Road. It was other things like glass, silver, and gold, and coral, and topaz, um, frankincense, textiles, spices, dyes, all these different things that the Romans could not obtain in their empire they had to turn their gaze to the east in order to get. You know, he goes on to make really interesting points about Constantine and talking about how, you know, Constantine being the one who adopted Christianity and, and permitted its, its practicing throughout the Roman Empire. But he also talks about Constantine's desire for Persia and his, his wanting to conquer Persia, how that affects the spread of Christianity because of its association now with Rome it hurts its spread in Persia and is going to limit the spread of that religion throughout the East. So just some really interesting things that we had not really considered prior to seeing this. And I think some of the coolest things he mentions um, is, is related to religion. One thing he says, unsubstantiated, unfortunately, but he does make a point to mention that it's kind of a curious, interesting fact that in Hinduism, in Buddhism, in Zoroastrianism, and in Christianity, 
the use of a halo for religious figures can be found in all of them. And I also just want to read you this paragraph because I think it's really cool about what made Christianity successful. He says here, quote, Part of the secret of Christianity's success lay in the commitment and energy of its evangelical mission. It helped, of course, that the enthusiasm was infused with a healthy dose of realism. Texts from the early 7th century record clerics working hard to reconcile their ideals with those of Buddhism, if not as a shortcut, then at least as a way of simplifying matters. The Holy Spirit, wrote one missionary who reached China, was entirely consistent with what the local population already believed. He says, quote, All Buddhists flow and flux by virtue of this very wind, that is the Holy Spirit, while in this world there is no place where the wind does not reach. Likewise, he went on, God has been responsible for immorality, immortality, immortality and everlasting happiness since the creation of the world. As such, quote, man will always do honor to the name of the Buddha. Christianity was not just compatible with Buddhism. He was saying, broadly speaking, it was Buddhism, end quote. So again, I just, it's really interesting to stop thinking about these different beliefs and these peoples and these ideas in isolation, but how they interact with one another. And that's what I think is one of the coolest things about that book, Silk Road. So very quickly for today's explainer, I just wanted to make mention, some of you might be like, you know, I feel like we were cheated for Africa and the Americas and Oceania. Uh, What are we going to do to address them? you know, in sufficient detail. So what I'll say is when we really get to addressing them in the next unit, we'll start off by placing their current historical developments, that is the stuff we're talking about at that time, we'll place it in its proper historical context. We'll give a little bit of a backstory so that you guys are good and familiar with the earlier things that develop throughout Africa, like the Bantu migrations and in the Americas, we'll, we'll get into the earlier peoples like the Olmecs uh, in a little bit more detail than maybe this chapter even covers. And finally, in terms of recommendations for today, uh, so it's the end of the unit, which means we've got to get down to review business. And for that, the recommendation I would make for you guys is going to be high-level history on YouTube. This is a former AP World History teacher whose job now is to help make life easier for you by producing content, including videos, tutorials, uh, discussion groups, a whole host of things. I'll link to some more uh, detailed resources below. Some things are free. The videos on YouTube are. Uh, Some are for other resources, which from what I've seen seem to be pretty good, do come at a bit of a cost. I'm not sure what it is off the top of my head. But in terms of just a good overview of these units, in terms of the key concepts specifically, the high-level histories are definitely a good place for you to go. So again, that'll be linked in the description for you guys, uh, and you'll be able to check those videos out on YouTube. But that's it. Unit two over, five chapters down. I'm not going to tell you how many are left because it's not going to make you happy, but you've made a little bit of a milestone here. So take a moment, celebrate that accomplishment and uh, gear up for the test because it's probably coming sooner than you want to realize. So that's all I've got. Take care, everybody.